Chapter thirty one, part three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter thirty one Invasion of Italy, Occupation of Territories by Barbarians, part three. In populous cities, which are the seats of commerce and manufacturers, the middle rank of inhabitants, who derive their sustenance from the dexterity or labour of their hands, are commonly the most prolific, the most useful, and, in that sense, the most respectable part of the community. But the plebeians of Rome, who disdained such sedentary and servile arts, had been oppressed from the earliest times by the weight of debt and usury, and the husbandman, during the term of his military service, was obliged to abandon the cultivation of his farm. The lands of Italy, which had been originally divided among the families of free and indigent proprietors, were insensibly purchased, or usurped, by the avarice of the nobles. And, in the age which preceded the fall of the Republic, it was computed that only two thousand citizens were possessed of an independent substance. Yet, as long as the people bestowed, by their suffrages, the honours of the state, the command of the legions, and the administration of wealthy provinces, their conscious pride alleviated in some measure the hardships of poverty, and their wants were seasonably supplied by the ambitious liberality of the candidates, who aspired to secure a venal majority, in the thirty-five tribes, or the hundred and ninety-three centuries, of Rome. But when the prodigal commons had not only imprudently alienated not only the use, but the inheritance of power, they sunk under the reign of the Caesars, into a vile and wretched populace, which must, in a few generations, have been totally extinguished, if it had not been continually recruited by the manumission of slaves and the influx of strangers. As early as the time of Hadrian, it was the just complaint of the ingenuous natives, that the capital had attracted the vices of the universe, and the manners of the most opposite nations. The intemperance of the Gauls, the cunning and levity of the Greeks, the savage obstinacy of the Egyptians and Jews, the servile temper of the Asiatics, and the dissolute, effeminate prostitution of the Syrians, were mingled in the various multitude, which, under the proud and false denomination of Romans, presumed to despise their fellow-subjects, and even their sovereigns, who dwelt beyond the precincts of the eternal city. Yet the name of that city was still pronounced with respect. The frequent and capricious tumults of its inhabitants were indulged with impunity, and the successors of Constantine, instead of crushing the last remains of the democracy by the strong arm of military power, embraced the mild policy of Augustus, and studied to relieve the poverty, and to amuse the idleness of an innumerable people. 1. For the convenience of the lazy plebeians, the monthly distribution of corn were converted into a daily allowance of bread. A great number of ovens were constructed and maintained at the public expense and, at the appointed hour, each citizen, who was furnished with a ticket, ascended the flight of steps, 
which had been assigned to his peculiar quarter or division, and received, either as a gift or at a very low price, a loaf of bread of the weight of three pounds, for the use of his family. 2. The forest of Lucania, whose acorns fattened large droves of wild hogs, afforded, as a species of tribute, a plentiful supply of cheap and wholesome meat. During five months of the year, a regular allowance of bacon was distributed to the poorer citizens, and the annual consumption of the capital, at a time when it was much declined from its former lustre, was ascertained, by an edict from Valentinian Third, at three million six hundred and twenty-eight thousand pounds. 3. In the manners of antiquity, the use of oil was indispensable for the lamp, as well as for the bath, and the annual tax, which was imposed on Africa for the benefit of Rome, amounted to the weight of three millions of pounds, to the measure, perhaps, of three hundred thousand English gallons. 4. The anxiety of Augustus to provide the metropolis with sufficient plenty of corn was not extended beyond that necessary article of human substance and when the popular clamour accused the dearness and scarcity of wine, a proclamation was issued, by the grave reformer, to remind his subjects that no man could reasonably complain of thirst, since the aqueducts of Agrippa had introduced into the city so many copious streams of pure and salubrious water. This rigid sobriety was insensibly relaxed, and although the generous design of Aurelian does not appear to have been executed in its full extent, the use of wine was allowed on very easy and liberal terms. The administration of the public cellars was delegated to a magistrate of honourable rank, and a considerable part of the vintage of Campania was reserved for the fortunate inhabitants of Rome. The stupendous aqueducts, so justly celebrated by the praises of Augustus himself, replenished the therm, or baths, which had been constructed in every part of the city with imperial magnificence. The baths of Antoneus Caracalla, which were open, at stated hours, for the indiscriminate service of the senators and the people, contained above sixteen hundred seats of marble, and more than three thousand were reckoned in the baths of Diocletian. The walls of the lofty apartments were covered with curious mosaics, that imitated the art of the pencil and the elegance of design and the variety of colours. The Egyptian granite was beautifully encrusted with the precious green marble of Numidia. The perpetual stream of hot water was poured into the capacious basins, through so many wide mouths of bright and massive silver, and the meanest Roman could purchase, with a small copper coin, the daily enjoyment of a scene of pomp and luxury, which might excite the envy of the kings of Asia. From these stately palaces issued a swarm of dirty and ragged plebeians, without shoes and without a mantle, who loitered away whole days in the street of Forum, to hear news and to hold disputes, who dissipated in extravagant gaming the miserable pittance of their wives and children, and spent the hours of the night in the obscure taverns and brothels, in the indulgence of gross and vulgar sensuality. But the most lively and splendid amusement of the idle multitude depended on the frequent exhibition of public games and spectacles. The piety of Christian princes had suppressed the inhuman combats of gladiators. 
but the Roman people still considered the circus as their home, their temple, and the seat of the Republic. The impatient crowd rushed at the dawn of day to secure their places, and there were many who passed a sleepless and anxious night in the adjacent porticoes. From the morning to the evening, careless of the sun or of the rain, the spectators, who sometimes amounted to the number of four hundred thousand, remained in eager attention, their eyes fixed on the horses and charioteers, their minds agitated with hope and fear, for the success of the colours which they espoused, and the happiness of Rome appeared to hang on the event of a race. The same immoderate ardour inspired their clamours and their applause, as often as they were entertained with the hunting of wild beasts, and the various modes of theatrical representation. These representations in modern capitals may deserve to be considered as a pure and elegant school of taste, and perhaps of virtue. But the tragic and comic muse of the Romans, who seldom aspired beyond the imitation of Attic genius, had been almost totally silent since the fall of the Republic, and their place was unworthily occupied by licentious farce, effeminate music, and splendid pagantry. The pantomimers who maintained their reputation from the age of Augustus to the sixth century, expressed, without the use of words, the various fables of the gods and heroes of antiquity, and the perfection of their art, which sometimes disarmed the gravity of the philosopher, always excited the applause and wonder of the people. The vast and magnificent theatres of Rome were filled by three thousand female dancers, and by three thousand singers with the masters of their respective choruses. Such was the popular favour which they enjoyed, that, in a time of scarcity, when all strangers were banished from the city, the merit of contributing to the public pleasures exempted them from a law, which was strictly executed against the professors of the liberal arts. It is said that the foolish curiosity of Elagabulus attempted to discover from the quantity of spider's web, the number of the inhabitants of Rome. A more rational method of inquiry might not have been undeserving of the attention of the wisest princes, who could easily have resolved a question so important for the Roman government, and so interesting to succeeding ages. The births and deaths of the citizens were duly registered, and if any writer of antiquity had condescended to mention the annual amount, or the common average, we might now produce some satisfactory calculation, which would destroy the extravagant assertions of critics, and perhaps confirm the modest and probable conjectures of the philosophers. The most diligent researchers have collected only the following circumstances, which, slight and imperfect as they are, may tend, in some degree, to illustrate the question of the populousness of ancient Rome. 1. When the capital of the empire was besieged by the Goths, the circuit of the walls was accurately measured by Ammonius, the mathematician, who found it equal to twenty-one miles. It should not be forgotten that the form of the city was almost that of a circle, the geometric figure which is known to contain the largest space with any given circumference. 2. The architect Vitruvius, who flourished in the Augustian age, and whose evidence on this occasion has peculiar weight and authority, 
observes that the innumerable inhabitants of the Roman people would have spread themselves far beyond the narrow limits of the city, and that the want of ground, which was probably contracted on every side by gardens and villas, suggested the common, though inconvenient practice of raising the houses to a considerable height in the air. But the loftiness of these buildings, which often consisted of hasty work and insufficient materials, was the cause of frequent and fatal accidents. And it was repeatedly enacted by Augustus, as well as by Nero, that the height of private edifices within the walls of Rome should not exceed the measure of seventy feet from the ground. 3. Juvenal laments, as it should be seen from his own experience, the hardships of the poorer citizens, to whom he addresses the sultry advice of emigrating, without delay, from the smoke of Rome, since they might purchase, in the little towns of Italy, a cheerful, commodious dwelling, at the same price which they annually paid for a dark and miserable lodging. House-rent was therefore immoderately dear. The rich acquired, at enormous expense, the ground which they covered with palaces and gardens. But the body of the Roman people was crowded into a narrow space, and the differing floors and apartments of the same house were divided, as it is still the custom of Paris and other cities, among several families of plebeians. 4. The total number of houses in the fourteen regions of the city is accurately stated in the description of Rome, composed under the reign of Theodosius, and they amount to 48,382. The two classes of Domus and of Insul, into which they are divided, include all the habitations of the capital, of every rank and condition, from the marble palace of the Anisi, with a numerous establishment of freedmen and slaves, to the lofty and narrow lodging-house, where the poet Cordras and his wife were permitted to hire a wretched garret immediately under the files. If we adopt the same average, which, under similar circumstances, has been found applicable to Paris, and indifferently allow about twenty-five persons for each house, of every degree, we may fairly estimate the inhabitants of Rome at twelve hundred thousand, a number which cannot be thought excessive for the capital of a mighty empire, though it exceeds the populousness of the greatest cities of modern Europe. Such was the state of Rome under the reign of Honorius, at the time when the Gothic army formed the siege, or rather the blockade, of the city. By a skilful disposition of his numerous forces, who impatiently watched the moment of an assault, Alaric encompassed the walls, commanded the twelve principal gates, intercepted all communication with the adjacent country, and vigilantly guarded the navigation of the Tiber, from which the Romans derived the surest and most plentiful supply of provisions. The first emotions of the nobles, and of the people, were those of surprise and indignation, that a vile barbarian should dare to insult the capital of the world. But their arrogance was soon humbled by misfortune, and their unmanly rage, instead of being directed against an enemy in arms, was meanly exercised on a defenceless and innocent victim. Perhaps in the person of Serena, the Romans might have respected the niece of Theodosius, 
the aunt, nay, even the adoptive mother of the reigning emperor. But they abhorred the widow of Stilicho, and they listened with credulous passion to the tale of calumny, which accused her of maintaining a secret and criminal correspondence with the Gothic invader. Actuated or overawed by the same popular frenzy, the Senate, without requiring any evidence of his guilt, pronounced the sentence of her death. Serena was ignominiously strangled, and the infatuated multitude were astonished to find that this cruel act of injustice did not immediately produce the retreat of the barbarians and the deliverance of the city. That unfortunate city gradually experienced the distress of scarcity, and at length the horrid calamities of famine. The daily allowance of three pounds of bread was reduced to one-half, to one-third, to nothing, and the price of corn still continued to rise in a rapid and extravagant proportion. The poorer citizens, who are unable to purchase the necessaries of life, solicited the precarious charity of the rich, and for a while the public misery was alleviated by the humanity of Laeta, the widow of the Emperor Gratian, who had fixed her residence at Rome, and consecrated to the use of the indigent the princely revenue which she annually received from the grateful successes of her husband. But these private and temporary donatives were insufficient to appease the hunger of a numerous people, and the progress of famine invaded the marble palaces of the senators themselves. The persons of both sexes, who had been educated in the enjoyment of ease and luxury, discovered how little is requisite to supply the demands of nature, and lavished their unveiling treasures of gold and silver to obtain the coarse and scanty sustenance which they would formerly have rejected with disdain. The food, the most repugnant to sense or imagination, the ailments the most unwholesome and pernicious to the constitution, were eagerly devoured and fiercely disputed by the rage of hunger. A dark suspicion was entertained that some desperate wretches fed on the bodies of their fellow-creatures, whom they had secretly murdered, and even mothers. Such was the horrid conflict of the two most powerful instincts implanted by the nature in the human breast. Even mothers are said to have tasted the flesh of their slaughtered infants. Many thousands of the inhabitants of Rome expired in their houses, or in the streets, for want of sustenance and as the public sepulchres without the walls were in the power of the enemy, the stench which arose from so many putrid and unburied carcasses infected the air, and the miseries of famine were succeeded and aggravated by the contagion of a pestilential disease. The assurances of speedy and effectual relief, which were repeatedly transmitted from the court of Ravenna, supported for some time the fainting resolution of the Romans, till, at length, the despair of any human aid tempted them to accept the offers of a preternatural deliverance. Pompeius, prefect of the city, had been persuaded, by the art or fanaticism of some Tuscan diviners, that, by the mysterious force of spells and sacrifices, they could extract the lightning from the clouds, and point those celestial fires against the camp of the barbarians. The important secret was communicated to Innocent, the Bishop of Rome, 
and the successor of St. Peter is accused, perhaps without foundation, of preferring the safety of the Republic to the rigid severity of the Christian worship. But when the question was agitated to the Senate, when it was proposed, as an essential condition, that those sacrifices should be performed in the capital, by the authority, and in the presence of the magistrates, the majority of that respectable assembly, apprehensive either of the divine or of the imperial displeasure, refused to join in an act, which appeared almost equivalent to the public restoration of paganism. The last resort of the Romans was in the clemency, or at least in the moderation, of the king of the Goths. The senate, who in this emergency assumed the supreme powers of government, appointed two ambassadors to negotiate with the enemy. This important trust was delegated to Basilius, a senator of Spanish extraction, and already conspicuous in the administration of provinces, and to John, the first tribune of the notaries, who was peculiarly qualified, by his dexterity in business, as well as by his former intimacy with the Gothic prince. When they were introduced into his presence, they declared, perhaps in a more lofty style than became their abject condition, that the Romans were resolved to maintain their dignity, either in peace or war, and that, if Alaric refused them a fair and honourable capitulation, he might sound his trumpets and prepare to give battle to an innumerable people, exercised in arms and animated by despair. The thicker the hay, the easier it is moved, was the concise reply of the barbarian, and this rustic metaphor was accompanied by a loud and insulting laugh, expressive of his contempt of the menace of an unwarlike populace, enervated by luxury, before they were emaciated by famine. He then condescended to fix the ransom, which he would accept as the price of his retreat from the walls of Rome. All the gold and silver in the city, whether it were the property of the state or of individuals, all the rich and precious movables, and all the slaves that could prove their title to the name of barbarians. The ministers of the senate presumed to ask, in a modest and suppliant tone, If such, O king, are your demands, what do you intend to leave us? Your lives, replied the haughty conqueror. They trembled and retired. Yet before they retired, a short suspension of arms was granted, which allowed some time for a more temperate negotiation. The stern features of Alaric were insensibly relaxed. He abated much of the rigour of his terms, and at length consented to raise the siege on the immediate payment of five thousand pounds of gold, of thirty thousand pounds of silver, of four thousand robes of silk, of three thousand pieces of fine scarlet cloth, and of three thousand pounds weight of pepper. But the public treasury was exhausted. The annual rents of the great estates in Italy and the provinces had been extinguished during the famine for the vilest sustenance. The hoards of secret wealth were still concealed by the obstinacy of avarice, and some remains of consecrated spoils afforded the only resource that could divert the appending ruin of the city. As soon as the Romans had satisfied the rapacious demands of Alaric, they were restored, in some measure, to the enjoyment of peace and plenty. 
several of the gates were cautiously opened. The importation of provisions from the river and the adjacent country was no longer obstructed by the Goths. The citizens resorted in crowds to the free market, which was held during three days in the suburbs, and while the merchants who undertook this gainful trade made a considerable profit, the future subsistence of the city was secured by the ample magazines which were deposited in the public and private granaries. A more regular discipline than could have been expected was maintained in the camp of Alaric, and the wise barbarian justified his regard for the faith of treaties by the just severity with which he chastised a party of licentious Goths, who had insulted some Roman citizens on the road to Ostia. His army, enriched by the contributions of the capital, slowly advanced into the fair and fruitful province of Tuscany, where he proposed to establish his winter quarters. And the Gothic standard became the refuge of forty thousand barbarian slaves, who had broke their chains and aspired, under the command of their great deliverer, to revenge the injuries and the disgrace of their cruel servitude. About the same time, he received a more honourable reinforcement of Goths and Huns, whom Adolphus, the brother of his wife, had conducted, at his pressing invitation, from the banks of the Danube to those of the Tiber, and who had cut their way with some difficulty and loss, through the superior number of the imperial troops. A victorious leader, who united the daring spirit of a barbarian, with the art and discipline of a Roman general, was at the head of a hundred thousand fighting men, and Italy pronounced, with terror and respect, the formidable name of Alaric. End of chapter 31, part 3